Hey everyone, welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Haven't been able to do a regular old podcast interview for quite a while, or at least one that I hosted. So it's good to be with you and to bring it back today with my friend, Peter Rollins. I'd say on my short list of people who have influenced me over the past eight, seven, eight, seven, <laughs> eight, nine, ten years, I, I like to um, count backwards sometimes. I'd say in the short list, Peter would probably make it. Who else would be on that list? Now that I'm thinking of it, well, there's some obvious ones. Thomas J. Ord's going to be on that list. Catherine Keller. Gosh, I love her theopoetics. Uh, John Caputo, speaking of theopoetics. Of course, Rene Girard, that goes without saying. Uh, people like Brad Cherzak, uh, Aaliyah, Ilya DeLeo. I've always said if I meet Ilya that I'll say, hi, Ilya DeLeo, what's the DeLeo? <laughs> Which is just stupid. But here's the thing. I'm supposed to meet her in July. So now I have to hold myself to that. It's not going to be funny, but, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Who else on my short list? People like James Baldwin and James Cone, for sure. Oh, James Allison. Lots of Jameses. Anyhow, Peter Rollins probably makes that list. It's been uh, influential for me. And I suppose if you want to know what my theology, psychology view of life is, well, just read all those people I just mentioned. And that's what I'm thinking, too. So it's great to have him on today. And I invited him to talk a bit with me about none other than Rene Girard. Because a lot of psychoanalysis thinking, like guys like Freud and Hegel and Lacan, I don't know if Hegel actually falls in that list or not, but he certainly influenced that group. A lot of the thinking that takes place in the psychoanalytic field is the kind of thinking that Girard um, overlaps with, benefits from, also uses. Now, these guys don't often cite one another, and when they do, sometimes it's in a rivalrous kind of way which is interesting since Girard talks so much about rivalry. but um, And so that may be some of it. But other times I just find it very interesting that um, there's not a lot of crosstalk when you're reading one. You don't read a lot about the other, though sometimes you do. Nevertheless, there's certainly overlap because when Girard says, you know, that our desires are the desires of others, he's not saying anything brand new. Those are the kinds of things that have been said by others though I think he takes it in some novel places, some novel ways. Anyhow, I wanted to have someone like Pete on to talk a bit about the overlap of all that. And so that's what we get into. And the main reason I'm doing all this is to try to pique your interest in an event happening August 19th of this year, if you're listening in 2023. If you're listening in the future, I can't help you. But if it's 2023, um, August 19th, if you go on Eventbrite and you search for, I think we're calling it Girardian Intersections, my friend Tom Ord and I are putting this together. Other people in the lineup include Andre Rabe, who's a friend of mine from South Africa, who's going to talk about Girard and Whitehead. And then we got Brian Zahn, who's going to talk about being at the intersection of the church and Girard. Julia Robinson-Moore at the intersection of Girard and the African-American experience. And then finally, Jennifer Garcia-Bashaw is going to talk about Girard at the intersection of him and the Bible. So it's a great list. It's going to be a lot of fun. Search for it on Eventbrite, and that'll happen in August. And another personal news, let's say I'm working on a book. I know that's hard to imagine. Uh, this most recent book is basically trying to bring in my story of grief and how it affected me personally and vocationally. It's something of a open and relational theological look at grief without saying as much. I'm also bringing in elements of uh, psychoanalytics and philosophy, again, without saying as much. It's really been helpful, meaningful for me to write. And I suppose by the end of the year, it'll be finished. We'll see, you know, if there are any publishers that are interested and then we'll go from there. I'm also speaking I'm doing a little mini workshop at the Open and Relational Theological Conference happening in Wyoming in July, again, of 2023. I don't know when this episode will be out exactly, but there may still be time to register for that event. So just search for the Center for Open and Relational Theology on your local Google site and then click on resources once you get there. 
and you'll find out about Oregon. I guess the other thing I'll, I'll mention today is that my friend Dana Hicks and I and a couple of others are starting a new group, a new association. We're not sure what to call it. It might be a denomination, um, though for some reason I'm reluctant to call it a denomination. Anyhow, it's called OpenTable.network. If you're a minister or part of a church that's feeling the squeeze of the conservative constraints around our country, around theology, around church, and you need a new ecclesiological home, this might be something for you to check out if you need to be credentialed or ordained somewhere that's affirming and that's open and that's, again, a bit more progressive than what you've had. Well, check out opentable.network. We're not fully up and running yet, but I do think the website is live so you could find out about that or you can also email me. Okay, well, if you don't know Pete, you need to check out PeterRollins.com. But basically, Pete is a writer, a thinker, a filmmaker, and a continental philosopher. And if you don't know about me, well, just go to JonathanFosterOnline.com. You can learn everything you need to know about me there. Okay, here's my interview with Peter Rollins as we talk about Rene Girard and other things. And the last thing I'll mention is if you would rather watch the video of this interview, I don't know why you would. It seems to me like it'd be more appealing just to listen to it. But yes, if you want to watch it, then you'll need to go to my Substack page. Just search for Jonathan underscore Foster. I'll put that in the show notes. Just subscribe. You can do either for free or you can do for a small monthly amount. Either way, then you'll get to see us talk instead of just have to hear us talk. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. It's like a beautiful place. One of, my, one of my dreams is to get over there for one of your conferences and to do that kind of stuff. That'd be fun. I know, man. I'll, like even, you know, come over and visit and just visit, but also... Uh, if you, I gotta say, I love the, I do two events and I can't say, it's almost like, oh, I love the events I run, but it's people who I bring in, do all yeah. the work. It's not me, but, uh, they're fun. Like, so Spark is coming up and I'm super excited about that. Literally just booked Foy Vance today. I don't know if you know Foy Vance, but he's a great singer songwriter, like really brilliant from Northern Ireland, lives in Scotland. And he's just done an album called The Joy of Nothing. And um, that's a big coup to get Foy in. Like, I, we're kind of friends anyway, so, but I've tried to get him in the past, but he's just too big. He's always touring. And today, went, yep, I can do it this year. So very excited about that. Is he a, a desire psychoanalysis kind of a guy? Well, you know, in, I'm interested to find out where he got, where the title went. So, because he is a full-on musician, he's a smart guy, but he he's just a musician, like does brilliant singer-songwriter. But I I I think that he and I um, are definitely kind of in the same kind of path. So, as an artist, he wouldn't be reading what I'm reading, but I think intuitively in his music, he gets he gets it all. So it's it's a really um, it's a great combination which i'm very excited about i'll try and get him to wake as well because we're doing a, we're doing wake next year so i'm excited about that. that's something you would like be interested in and be maybe get you great to get you to come and talk about your art or something so yeah, um, that would be a lot of fun yeah well let's get uh, going we've already been going so welcome everybody um this is my friend peter rollins and Peter probably doesn't need an introduction in the circles that I'm in. He's influenced um, a lot of people, mostly for good. I think maybe some, yeah. for, maybe some for, for some chaos. for bad, but I don't talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, or for chaos, um, which is neither good nor bad, uh, and it's a it's a very amoral, uh, neutral, but I think in the end potentially positive thing. Um, so Pete, yeah, personally, thanks for your work, man. Um, and I know we've had a chance to talk a time or two before, and I appreciate you taking time out, uh, in Ireland, you're several hours ahead to do this. And I just wanted to chat a bit today about, um, oh, kind of the, the context of Rene Girard and which I think has a lot of crossover with the stuff that you do. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe we'd start by, um, could I ask you a bit about maybe like a timeline kind of a question? Um, because so what happens with Girard is like the story almost becomes mythical. Like he moves to America and all of a sudden, you know, he gets this random job at a university and he's teaching Proust and Camus and Shakespeare. And if 
people don't spend much time with it. They they could imagine that Gerard just out of nowhere comes up with these ideas. Um, but when when Gerard says, you know, our desire is always the desire of the other. Well, I mean, that just didn't come out of a vacuum. I mean, that was clearly influenced by others. And I'm not suggesting that he was necessarily trying to hide that. But I don't think a lot of people realize um, the connection to to others. So I'm always trying to connect the dots, you know, between Hegel and Freud and certainly Lacan. And um, I wonder if you had a, if you could give us like maybe a, a brief overview of where the study of desire and that kind of psychology maybe came from and what would have influenced him, um, even though <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to find always exactly how that influenced him. Yeah, and you know, that's a two-way street. Um, there is all these great theorists hanging around, and um, sometimes you can, well, I don't even want to say that they, you know, like yourself, I don't want to say like they hid their influences, but, you know, like Lacan, I don't know if Lacan mentions Girard. I mean, if he does, it's hardly at all. And um, But, did, you know, they did know each other. And you reminded me actually in an email that it was really Girard who introduced some of the the Lacan and was it Derrida as well? Really right. First time uh, Derrida was here. Yeah, yeah. So like that's the story that's not told very very much. Um, I actually also got in trouble recently, which I I think it's fine to have gotten trouble. I I talked about Irani Girard and said as a, a literary theorist, Girard, and a couple of people were going like, was he really a literary theorist? Because well, he was, but he was many things. But he was actually a literary theorist, getting a lot of these ideas from deep readings of literature. Um, he was a man who was able to pull from so many different sources, um, similar to Lacan, actually, like these these European intellectuals had such a broad um, base that they pulled from. I mean, people like Deleuze are the same. You know, one minute you're reading some, he's quoting a playwright, the next minute a scientist, the next minute a philosopher. Um, so, yeah, in terms of in terms of Girard and Freud and Lacan, I mean, they're, they're all interested in this question of desire and the other. And that, that's where my interest in Girard is. And, you know, I um, I avoided being taking part in the conference many times out of genuine kind of going like, I don't feel I know Girard well enough to talk in any form of expertise about him. I've read some of his stuff. I read actually a few Girardians, but my area is more Lacan. But I would love to sit with you and talk about the, the connections and the differences potentially between the two. I, I have an intuition as to where the difference between Lacan and Girard lies uh, in relation to desire. And I would like to, you know, uh, almost present it to you to see if you think and if other Girardians think that um, I've got this right or not. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so because so as you say, these, these thinkers are interested in desire, interested in the other, interested in the unconscious. Here's my, here's what I love about Girard, first of all, of course, is um, the original sin of desire, right? This this notion that, that at, at our core, um, desire interweaves us with the other in relations of rivalry, jealousy, admiration, envy, right? So these, these our desire is almost cannot be disentangled from these experiences with the other and this entanglement of rivalry and jealousy and admiration desire uh you know creates conflict and you know Girard beautifully and brilliantly shows how skip the scapegoat mechanism is a way for society to manage this violence um and then of course his kind of reading of christianity in, in that light is fascinating um the the interesting thing to me as in the, the central insight of lacan uh lacan himself says that his greatest discovery or invention was object a um a particular object of desire now the way I would describe it, and I think this is probably in Girard, but slightly different, is Girard is interested in the objects that we desire 
and how we invest those objects with desire because the other's desire lights upon them. And we have, you know, with children, you have joint attention where there's a point where the infant begins to look at where the adult is looking. So the infant starts to see the gaze of the other and see where it alights and starts to take an interest in that, you know, that object. Um, uh, and then the scapegoat mechanism and kind of the idea of realizing that the scapegoat is innocent can have this very transformative experience for us. Um, for Lacan, he says that the object of desire, the kind of the fundamental object of desire is not an object as such that is out there in the world that is given meaning and weight because of the other's desire. But the real object of desire is the desire of the other um, as such. And so it's in other words, it's almost like it's not simply that I desire what the other desires. I also desire the type of relationship the other has with the object they desire. I desire their mood of desire. And this, I think, leads to I, I, maybe an enriching. This is maybe right where reading Girard and Lacan together creates something interesting because I think Richard Boothby, who's a great Lacanian theorist, in his book, Embracing the Void, um, he kind of argues almost that the central insight of Christianity is love your enemy. Um, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And and by that, he means that Christianity at its best orients us to the dasting of the other, the unknown dimension of the other, uh, which is both alluring and terrifying. So this, the other is a stranger, and we all know this, even the most familiar person can be a stranger to us. They do something, they have an affair or something like that, and they basically do something that that makes them suddenly completely strange. I thought I knew you completely and suddenly I don't know you at all, right? The dasting of the other, that is the the point of allure, alluring and also terrifying dimension of the other. And so what, what Boothby says is like, what Christianity uh, orients us to is that the unknown dimension of the other is where religion is is kind of fulfilled, you know, to know God is to know the unknown dimension of the other. Now, for me, Girard's central thing is the, is, you know, the crucifixion and the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, and I think there's a really interesting way of bringing these together, that, you know, the kind of the crucifixion, the scapegoat mechanism and the orientation towards the other's enigmatic desire. Uh, that I think is a very Lacanian kind of approach. Now, okay, what do you think of this? Um, oh. <laughs> it's so good, and there's so much that you've already said. Uh, speaking of Boothby, I think we have a mutual friend, uh, Kike Audrey. I was oh yes, I yes. I was able to be on his podcast, and I'm and I'm going to actually, I think, what is today, Thursday, tomorrow, I'm supposed to interview with him again, and my friend and uh, Matthew Siegel. I don't know if you know Matt. He's a white headian. Oh, I knew the name. Maybe we've had an email back and forth or someone's mentioned him, but I knew that name, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Anyhow, um, so just connecting the dots. So yeah. so backing up to your your theory with respect to Lacan and Girard, um, you're right. There's so much resonance. And what I hear you saying is that Lacan, um, it's more than the triangular desire of that particular object that eventually that object, you know, is like subsumed by the other person. And actually, this is what Girard says, too. Girard says, eventually, it's not about the object. Eventually, you know, I want to be that other person. Um, mm -hmm. I desire the what I imagine is the metaphysical autonomy of that other person. Because all of that is born out of this deep relationality, like you said, of this, um, the thing that seems to be true of all of us humans, that we have this um, intense awareness, though we don't always talk about it, of our own lack, of our own insecurity, of like that gap. And so if that's what Lacan is saying, and uh, I seem to, to think that as well, that is that is very true of Gerard too. So there's another piece where they're they're really resonant. Um, well, let, let, 
let me say something on that and see if you because this is what's interesting to me where like i'm gonna you know mention a, an element of lacan that i think is interesting and i that i'm not sure is in gerard or not and but to hear your feedback on this because it's good to hear you go like no i think that that is in there and um i'm interested in that is it so for me then the central in kind of I, keep, I use this term the central insight of and then i change whatever the central insight is depending on who i'm talking to but you know but maybe the you know, one of the central insights of psychoanalysis particularly the french psychoanalysis of lacan is um that the kind of uh the cure as such is when you realize that the other is divided um, the other is a divided subject like you. So the, the other's desire is fragmented. They they are unknown, not just to me, but they are unknown to themselves. Now, this is why for me, the central ins the, 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 the central insight of Christianity is um is whenever Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's not simply that Christ is the, the innocent. So we realize that we've protect, projected our own violence onto this innocent victim. It's also that we see that the other is divided. The other is not at one with themselves. And once I realize that you're divided and your desire is divided, you're unknown, you have an unconscious. And once I can bear that, and once I can be in the presence of that dimension within you, um, this is kind of what I, what I would say is kind of the salvatory message of Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, how much do you think that resonates with with Gerard? Yeah, it starts to break down probably a little bit there. Yeah, um, because Gerard starts to get it's it's wild for all of his brilliant insight. Um, he really spends so much energy taking the negative aspects of all of this. And running through, like you mentioned, through that scapegoating mechanism, the sequence, that sometimes it's surprising how little he spends on the, you know, saving aspect of it, of, of like you said. I mean, he was certainly by, you know, midway point and then the rest of his life, he was an ardent Catholic and, um, you know, certainly was a devout person. And that's, of course, not something that you seem to see play out in some of the other psychoanalytic guys. But yes, so that's very interesting. Um, Can I ask about that? By the way, yeah. Gerard, Gerard's Christology is is phenomenal. If I was to, you know, clump for a Christology, I mean, my Christology is probably a Christology of self division in some respects. You know, that's self divided. But Gerard's Christology is fascinating. But it's um, I mean, when I read the little I read of him, and when I read him, um, I get a sense that for him, his his faith, his religion, his religiosity is connected to the experience of the the breakdown of the scapegoat mechanism and living into something else. But he also then just seems to me also quite traditionally religious. And and I don't know, is that the case? Like is is this, like like does he believe in like does he have a belief in a kind of a transcendent God, because I don't think that necessarily yeah, plays kind of, into his theory. Right. It kind of doesn't make sense. And that's the part where um, you, you have to critique some of this thinking because he doesn't seem to take that um, in a direction that is congruent with the way he lived his own life. Again, going to mass frequently and being very devout. And by all appearances, I never had the chance to meet him, but I've now met quite a few people who have seems like an incredibly genuine, humble, really gracious person. And I think that even comes through in his, in his writing. So mm -hmm. there, they, it gets fuzzy there. Um, he's like, he's so focused on the scapegoating mechanism, um, which is fascinating in and of itself, because what he is saying when you play it out is, uh, so here, by the way, so here, here's where I think, and I'm not sure. That's why it's great to have conversations like this with you. Um, and also, hey, do you know, you know, Tim Subtle, right? Do you remember oh, yes, Tim? I do. Yeah. yeah, Tim's a good friend of mine. And so we've oh, had, uh, we've had conversations about this. I know, I, I love his stuff and hopefully it'll get published soon because I think the world would benefit from it. But um, what I think happens is he gets so focused on 
the scapegoating piece, it becomes regressive and it's this downward spiral. But it, but for him, you know, we, we return to the scapegoat again and again because it works. I mean, it, it only lasts for a little while. Yeah. But then we repeat it and it's in this repetition in the rinse and repeat that religion is born. And so I love the idea, you know, often we'll hear in our society that, you know, um, all religion does is it is it stirs up violence for Gerard and probably others too. That doesn't go far enough. It's actually the other way around. It's the violence. It's the inability to sit with my own, as you're calling, like dividedness that leads, that stirs up the anxiety, that activates the sequence. You go all the way through that mechanism. And then so religion is actually born out of violence itself. Um, yeah. And so if we could, if we could go all the way back whatever that means, and say, like, um, we're never really separate from God, but I, so I think that's really true, but I also love what you're saying, this whole piece of, well, maybe God, if I'm not putting too many words in your mouth, maybe God, there's an essence of love that's divided itself. So we're never really separate from that, but what does it mean to be connected to a thing, to an essence that is in itself? you know, so agitated and divided, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself to answer your question. Yeah. Gerard gets fuzzy with some of that. <laughs> well, you're, you know, you're making me think, so this is interesting. I like in a nutshell here is, um, I think a Lacanian interpretation of religion, how religion, you know, what religion is trying to do. And then, cause I want to try and connect it and see if it connects or in what way to, the way you summarized, you know, Girard's notion of religion as a, you know, the repetition of the scapegoat mechanism and the religion in, in a way um, embodying this kind of ritual of like dissipating of violence through an act of violence. Right. Um, the the Lacanian, and this is very much again, Boothby, I mean, Shizak has been very influential to me, um, but just Boothby more recently, and his book just came out, Embracing the Void, which I think is a great book. Um, in that, he argues that, yeah, religions, you know, it's a very hard, we all know the difficulty of trying to make a definition of that word and the, almost the impossibility of it. But to a certain extent, I think, it's useful to say that religion might be our way of attempting to tarry with a dimension of the unknown and not simply the contingently unknown of like science and what we, you know, we currently don't know, but the kind of wrestling with a fundamental form of unknowing. And there's different ways in which religions, you know, do that. Um, and then from the Lacanian perspective, almost religion arises because the first unknown that we encounter is the unknown of the other's desire. The very the, the mother other who is feeding us and clothing us and helping us. But we when we start to realize that they have a desire and that they they are sometimes there for us and sometimes not, the question is what do they desire? What where do I fit into their desire? Um, how can I be desirable to them? All those questions that begin to arise. And the really interesting thing then is that but from the very beginning, our own subjectivity is completely intertwined with the question of the other's desire, the question of where do I fit in the desire of the other? Um, and so religion then, from a Lacanian perspective, and what, what Boothby does is he looks out through the three um, registers of Lacan, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real, looks at how human beings have attempted, attempted to understand that dimension of the unknown and seen it within all of reality. Um, and then there's a question of whether it is in all of reality. I'd like to say it kind of is, but um, this unknown dimension. Uh and then for me, scapegoating becomes one of the symptoms of religion. Um, it, scapegoating is one of the ways that we tame um, the anxiety that is produced 
by that questioning. So I'm kind of I'm I'm thinking out loud at the moment, but I'm trying to see how I would link Lacan and, and Girard together and then maybe seeing the scapegoat mechanism as a type of symptom of religion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I think you're very close. Obviously for Girard, the scapegoat piece becomes the, to use your favorite word, central uh piece of his of his thing. Yeah. And what he's saying is yeah, we return to that. Uh, without that, there is no religion. And so it becomes, you know, the whole idea of the pharmacos, uh, it becomes the poison um, that we that we take to get rid of, like you said, it's another way of saying it, doing violence to get rid of violence. And so it's in all of that, that becomes the foundational thing that religion is born out of. So, and and then he, you know, so what he's saying is our our culture is built on the scapegoating mechanism, which is built on sacrifice. So really our culture, the entire, you know, history of modern humanity is built on sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then of course, if you go back even further, I, I think if, if that's the way of saying it, again, you're back to this, well, what, what started that need in the first place? It's this mm-hmm. anxiety, it's this insecurity, it's this reality that's born out of the fact that we're all in relationship with each other, like you're saying. And yeah, you don't grow up. I think Lacan and Girard and others are correct. It's not like you grow up and then decide what you're going to like or, you know, who you're going to become. That is all forming you as you grow up and as you're maturing. And so it's deeply entangled and enmeshed and way more complex than uh, than we ever, we ever imagined, I think. Yeah. So, so the question, the question for me is whether the Lacanian object A, object Putia, is, um, you know, whether that, whether there's a Girardian equivalent to that, um, whether that is something that kind of adds to your understanding of, you know, both psychoanalysis but religious theory, religion, um, and. Yeah, and that's this is basically where if I had the time, and I should have have the time actually to read Gerard carefully, but this is where your job comes in. <laughs> I, you know, I throw, you know, to 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 try to answer these questions. Um, because f- for me, I mean, one one of the one of the differences between psychoanalysis and existentialism, which I can I think talk more confidently about, is that in existentialism in general, anxiety is more personal. Um, anxiety is your experience of freedom, um, you know, in the kind of Sartrean way. And, you know, there's a lot to that. Obviously, I anxiety is created by the fact that I am free, that I am not on reels, that I have to make a stance in the world, you know. And Sartre famously says, you know, even if you believe that God is speaking to you and telling you what you have to do, you still have to decide whether that's God or a devil. You know, you still you can't you can't advocate your responsibility. You still have to decide, you know, whether whether you know, God is testing you or not, or what all these questions. And that's very interesting. But the Lacanian notion of anxiety is, I think, more interesting. Which is, anxiety is not first and foremost the created from your own experience of freedom. What do I want? It's more fundamentally connected to what does the other want from me? What is the other desire? So anxiety is linked fundamentally from the very beginning with the other. And I like this as a starting point because I think that's a great starting point for trying to understand religion and concrete religions. And I think it's a great way of understanding the symptoms of religions, scapegoating, I think, being maybe the central, you know, symptom, um, but other symptoms being, uh, you know, Boothby says with for Greek religion, the symptoms are uh, sacrifice, you know, uh, you know, you sacrifice to the gods and um, and heroism. Interestingly, you know, these are kind of some of the symptoms you see in Greek religion. In the Jewish religion, it's the law, right? It's it's the it's the um keeping the practices and uh, uh, and then in Christianity it's belief right you know the centrality weirdly of belief and 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 judging who's right and wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. but these are all symptoms of and different symptomologies of religion 
You could say they're all defenses. They're all ways to try to get us close to the dusting, the unknown dimension of the other, and also protect ourselves from it. And then I fit Girard in and go, the scapegoating mechanism is maybe the chief way in which religions have tried to deal with the anxiety that's produced by the question of what does the other want, um, which is ultimately our desires, is, is for, say, for the other's desire. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, the kind I, of religious theory that I'm interested in. No, I am too, and I think it's, uh, I think it's, I feel a lot of resonance, trying not yeah. to use, yeah, I think that's what it is. There's a lot of vibrations here that are, that are very similar. So that's, that's good stuff. Um, hey, let's take a left turn for a second. What, how do you see uh, Jesus, the role of Jesus? Would you say, um, how would you explain his inner dividedness? Um, yeah. How does that, how does that play out for you? Yeah, for me, yeah. So I would, I would, so I'm interested, right? I've mostly been interested in Christ over Jesus, right? Yeah. So I've mostly been interested in Christology over the figure of Jesus. Thankfully, um, I say Boothby might be saving me from that, and he's given me a space for understanding, I think, how Jesus fits in. But I, my, heard, you, my Christ- I heard you say that recently, how Boothby has kind of invited you to see Jesus um, reacting, relating to the other and the being that other foreigner, enemy, whatever. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, like, because if I was honest... You know, I wouldn't say this necessarily, but if I was honest, I would be kind of going like, Jesus is a little bit of a kind of like, kind of don't really know what to do with the Gospels. You know, I'm very Paulinian, you know, I'm very much Shizakian, so I'm very much in the kind of Christ crucified. And I and that makes sense for me. And I'm going like, what do I do with the Gospels? So now I kind of think I know how I, what I can do there. But my Christology, in short, or the Christology I'm interested in, is definitely influenced by Girard, I think there's two dimensions. So one is the innocent. So the 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 obstacle to God being God and being innocent. So in the in Christology it's almost like the revelation of of uh, projection and transference. You know, you you realize I'm projecting my own violence onto this innocent other. And I think there's something very um powerful about that that event and then you know that predates obviously psychoanalysis this is projection like this is what analysts do all the time is you see that the person you hate you know that that partner or that parents that you cannot stand suddenly in the analysis you find out one that you're putting that on to them and two you're enjoying the hatred you're enjoying crucifying them you're enjoying the destructive behavior you're getting something out of it and that very act of acknowledgement can be transformative you know the very realization in which you see your enjoyment is you're you're um like Sapanchic talks about this in her excellent book what is sex but that the analyst confronts you with your disavowed enjoyment you know and we're shouting crucify him you know where it's like you know we're getting this enjoyment out of the scapegoat mechanism but the very realization of that can be enough to change your mode of enjoyment so um the 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 story that uh, sapanchic uses which i think is very very good it's an old joke about a guy who comes home from work and he says to his wife get me a beer before it starts and he turns on the tv there's adverts and uh, his wife sighs gets him a beer he drinks it the adverts are still on he says get me another beer before it starts and she gets him another beer and he drinks that the adverts are still going and he's going right listen get me another one quick it's about to start it's about to start and she says shut up you get your own beer like you i'm not your skivvy and uh, he says ah oh, there you go it started Right. Um, and then you realize, oh, he's talking about get me a beer before the argument starts. Right. Now, in analysis, this imagine that's a dream that I that's a dream I had. I've come home to my partner and I'm, I'm wanting to watch some sports on TV. I've had a hard day's work and I ask her to get me a drink before it starts. And she gets me a drink. And then, you know, I ask her to get me another drink in the dream. And she gets me another drink. And then she starts shouting at me. So I, I, that's my dream. 
then the analyst, if they're listening, would say, oh, so it started. Right. So as soon as as soon as you hear the line, it started, you realize that the guy I'm not waiting for the advert to start. I'm waiting for the argument to start. And I'm not passive in it. I'm active in it. I'm actually generating the argument that I think I'm passively experiencing. And this very insight into, oh, in my relationship with my partner, I basically start the fights or I get them into a point where they start the fight and I getting some enjoyment out of that. It's it's binding me, it's holding me together in some way. And that very insight can be enough to facilitate a change. So that's one element of Christology I think is important. I think that's very Girardian from the little I know. Mm-hmm. And the other element which is connected is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the um, the realization that the other is divided as well. It's not simply that I am divided, it's that the absolute is divided. So in other words, you know, in the in the uh, the traditional notion of God is the God in which everyone is castrated except for God, right? So there's one exception and then everybody else, we're all castrated. So in feudal society, we all have these terrible jobs we have to do. We can't, we don't have any social mobility. It's all a bit rubbish, but you know, God is whole and complete or, you know, the king down the road or whatever. There's, there's one person who is outside the law of castration and we're all part of it. In, in modern society, we live in the God of the demand to enjoy. And that's the God in which none of us need to be castrated. Right, that where we can have what we want, we can be entrepreneurs of the self, we can seize the day, we can be all that we can be, we can be fulfilled if we do psychedelics or we have certain commodities or we do we have a certain amount of money, right? Um, this and then this generates um, a lot of resentment and jealousy because every time we go onto social media, it looks like everybody else has the fullness and non-castration that somehow is we're missing. And it's the God of the demand to enjoy, 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 enjoy. Um, and interestingly, the traditional God creates more social solidarity because if we're all castrated together, we're all in the same boat. In a society in which everybody around you looks uncastrated, like they looks like they've got the thing, then it you know creates a lot of social division, social fragmentation. For me, the the central notion of Christology is a God who is also divided, a God who is also castrated. So it's not simply that God is the exception and we're all divided. It's not that none of us can need to be divided. We can all be whole and complete, but rather division is is woven into the very nature of reality itself. There is basically a quantum dimension or an asymmetry within reality itself. And when you acknowledge that insight, when you genuinely realize that 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 there is no sacrifice of sacrifice, there is no end where we're all complete and whole. And actually it's in sacrifice that you get meaning, in not having that you get enjoyment then for me, that's that's kind of the salvatory event. That's participation in Christ is that realization. So many good things. Um, I'm yeah, hoping... Can, oh, yeah. yeah. Can I say one thing on that, actually? Just because the very moment when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temple curtain rips. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, and I, I actually, I got onto this through a book I think it was called the Genesis of Desire. Is that a, a yeah? But there was um, about kind of a Girardian who was reading Genesis, and that I think stuck in my head some of the stuff. But the way I read Genesis is kind of like an Oedipal story, where Adam and Eve are walking around the garden. There's a prohibition: don't eat of the fruit, and that prohibition generates the desire, and the fruit suddenly becomes magical, like it will make you whole and complete. You will be like God. You will no longer lack, right? And they break the prohibition. They get the fruit. It's a disaster. And the serpent is like the superegoic injunction to enjoy. The superego saying, you should do this. Get the fruit. You'll be whole and complete. And for me, the temple in Jerusalem is the replaying of the Garden of Eden. You have the court of Gentiles where everybody can hang out. You have the prohibition, the curtain, and you have the holy of holies 
you know, which is kind of the, what we're separated from. And whenever Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Within the narrative, this is the very moment when the temple curtain rips. You see inside the Holy of Holies, you realize there's nothing there. There is nothing in the Holy of Holies. There is no wholeness and completeness on the other side. There's just another room, just an empty room, right? But for me, that's the salvatory moment, is then you realize the sacred is not an object that you can love. However, you realize that the sacred is in the depth dimension of love itself, that in somehow embracing the work of love, that is where um, meaning and purpose uh, arises. All right. Stop the fire hose for, for just a second. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good stuff. I hope uh, if people are listening, haven't heard you before, they just got a really nice taste of Pete Rollins um, at oh. his best. That's, that's good stuff. I love all that stuff. A couple comments. Um, yeah. And then I, won't, I don't want to take all your day, but um, first of all, yeah, love. I want to get to love because that's important. Um, when you said exception, that's a that's a great word, and there's a connection there to Whiteheadian stuff, process, wow. open, and relational theology, because um, you know one of Whitehead's big tenets is that um, this idea that you know none of us are exceptions to reality. Reality, we're all exemplifications of reality. So, for example, recently um, someone mentioned this, so I looked it up to make sure. Just a couple of days ago, I looked up the word nature in the dictionary and to uh, online so it's supposed to be updated and to this day nature is defined as something that has to do with um, everything basically but humanity which doesn't make any sense huh. humanity is a part of nature this is where we come from so i think that speaks to a, a deep disconnect as to what's going on so we're all exemplifications none of us can really ever get that perfect objective position to figure it out and what what um, open and relational theology process influenced open and relational theology does is it says this is true of God too, which I think is another way of saying what you're saying, that God is the is not an exception to reality, but is the chief exemplification of reality. So if I, if you and I are struggling with these things or working through this sense of division, however we call it, insecurity, lack, anxiety. Um, why would that not be true of the divine as well at some level? And for me, I don't know for sure, but I think the best thing I can say of the divine is that it is love. I think it is love. Well, I think it's the most interesting thing. It might not be. It might be wrath or whatever. But I think the most interesting thing is that it's love. And if it's love, gosh, yeah, love is full of risk and vulnerability and you know, love isn't love unless the beloved can walk away. Well, that yeah. in and of itself incites all this um, really troubling, you know, insecurity and all these potential problems. So that's that's really what I love to do. What I enjoy doing is trying to connect the dots to get to love. And to me, it seems like there's a lot of congruence and resonance to what what you're saying with that idea of the disturbance of love and how it's so intimate with us. Yeah. So the the question because this this is interesting because you're you're you read and are familiar and swim in the waters of two thinkers who I have just dipped my toe into. So Whitehead much more might dip my toe into, um, you know, and Gerard, I, you know, I've maybe gone waist deep, but you've gone right over your head. Right? Um, I know my Deleuze a bit and he's a bit whiteheadian, but that's about it. Um, but the, there's, there definitely seems to be some similarities here. Um, and again, me always looking for kind of the potential differences to try to kind of tease those out is my friend Padre Gotuma, who's a great poet, great Irish poet, I recommend anybody to read his stuff. But he um, he has a poem written from the perspective of Jesus um, in uh, when he descended into hell. And there's there's one line where he, def he defines God as my favorite emptiness. Mm. I, I love this phrase. Um, I secretly, I want to have a, use it as a title for my next book and cook the poem. I haven't told him yet, so I'll, <laughs> but here's hoping he might say yes. Otherwise, I'll have to find a different one. But my favorite emptiness, 
And I, I really like this because I guess were I if I if I was to give this what is the signifier God for me? What is the signifier God? I think what it signifies is a dimension of rupture or antagonism or asymmetry at the heart of everything. Now, this is where it's connected with what you're saying with love. Because the way I understand love is love is an orientation towards the dimension of nothing, the, the, the otherwise than being. It's an orientation to the dimension of the other that is fundamentally unknowable. Isn't not that, just on isn't that what Lacan says? Love is orienting yourself to the other's lack or something like that. Yeah. That's yeah, a really exactly. good definition. Yeah. I know it's it's very good. And like typical Lacan, he has these wee aphorisms that just take so much time to unpack. But when you unpack them, oh, they're so rich. So rich. Like he says, I think it's like he says, like, you know, love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it. Um <laughs> and I can love that because you go like, what, what do I not have? And in a way, that's my desire, what I lack. And nobody wants your lack, your weakness. Your, the, you know, in a way, that's the last thing you want. When you, when you go onto a dating site, you want someone who's going to make you whole and complete and is going to like the same movies that you like and like the same music that you like and, you know, have the same political opinions as you. And, and you know, but that's not really love. I mean, it's maybe narcissistic love. But when you really fall in love, it's like, oh, shit, I don't agree with this person at all. And they're a bit weird. And, and I don't know if I even like them. But, oh. There's something about this unknown dimension of them that 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 just pulls me in, and vice versa. Somehow, you in love, you you create a harbor for each other's lap, and uh, yeah, and I think that's a beautiful way. And I think it, this is a way of thinking about God as love. And the difference for me is is whether you go with a substantive notion of God as love. And I always get that vibe with process theologians a little bit, um, that there's a more substantive notion there. Or you go with a more insubstantial notion, which is a bit more Lacan, which is kind of like, like love only comes into being because there is a quantum dimension to reality. There is a type of asymmetry within everything that that both we are born out of and that we orient ourselves to and god is the name for that unfathomable dimension uh, but they both they both pan out in very similar ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know um i've been a bit more mystical at times and thought of god in a more as a more substantive transcendental hyper presence um and then i've been a little bit more kind of god is the name for my favorite emptiness that's that's a great line yeah, no, I, yeah, as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. I've, um, and then my friend Foy Vancey, I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I think, but he's a musician. Again, I would recommend people check him out. He's a how do you, how musician. How do you spell his name? Oh, so Foy, F-O-Y, and then Vance, V-A-N-C-E, Foy Vance. Uh, cool. beautiful singer songwriter but his latest album which hasn't come out yet but it's called you know the joy of nothing and um i love that album title uh, i already kind of get a feel for the music just from that mm -hmm. title because even someone like um b young chul han who the the south korean thinker who's you know being quite popular at the moment but just read his he, book on beauty really short thing but it's really really nice Oh, which one was that? Oh, yeah, beauty. Yeah, because I read beauty. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 he writes these beautifully short books. Yes, yeah. I read like just a couple of his these beautifully short books. And yeah. his his approach, I think, is very much that we live in a society of pure positivity, pure kind of excess, pure get, 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 have, 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 which creates symptoms like, um, you know, it's like uh, fatigue, depression, burnout, um. And we need a space for nothingness. We need to create those spaces of the nothing. There was actually a religious sect uh, in Russia, a Russian Orthodox group 
They're so small, there's virtually nothing about them online. I asked ChatGBT about it, he didn't even know, or she didn't even know, or it didn't even know. And, but uh, they used to cut a hole in the wall and they would pray to the hole. So I said most Russian Orthodox, you know, they have icons they pray to, but they literally would pray to a type of gap. And um, I, I find that very fruitful kind of metaphor. They could just go down to the local mall and find the Gap store. Oh, yes, the Gap, yes. That's kind of, uh, that's ironic on a couple of levels there, isn't it? Yeah, there's something. I've never thought about that. That's, that's very ironic, yeah. Um, mm. It's the very opposite of the Gap. Exactly. What, what are we actually saying here? Yeah. Uh, well, that was worth, um, that was worth the whole episode, just to think of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, the gap. That, I mean, it is very interesting that that term because for me, at every level of reality, the gap is both appears and we try to overcome it. Um, and so, uh, you know, at the level of biology is evolution. Evolution is the non-at-oneness of biological organisms that creates complexity. But in a sense, evolution is potentially always striving to get beyond the chaos, but the chaos just goes deeper and deeper and creates more and more complexity. In mathematical theory, it's Gödel's incompleteness theorem um, that you know mathematics has a kind of fundamental, potentially a fundamental um, uh, contradiction at its very heart, that something can be true and not provable. Um, at the level of politics, democracy, the non-at-oneness of the social body that we're always trying to overcome, but we can never overcome. But in in the very movement of democracy, uh, society, civilization results. Um, in physics, we have particle duality. And in religion, the death of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find all that very fascinating. And all of it is resonant with with love and with, I think, reality. Mm. One of our, I think one of our great problems is we've just created, well, at least Americanized religion is so non-resonant with reality that it just is not helpful and it's actually unhealthy. So, yeah. And this is, yeah, yeah. And this is where, you know, the work of Shizak was so important to me for a number of reasons, but I think he really helped me get on the path of realizing or realizing that, but, but of very much I do think this that that the the kind of the uh the dissatisfaction that I experience within myself is not something to kind of be overcome but is is woven into everything even physics itself and and there's an enjoyment in dissatisfaction there's an enjoyment in not having and that this connects with christianity the the self-divided god like for me what makes christians unique is not they believe in god my goodness so many people believe in god they believe in the death of god right that's a that's a unique um, you know, interesting event is that is the notion of a self-divided God. And I, I just don't think we have really created a institution that does justice to that insight yet. That for me is the next reformation. Oh, I think so. Yeah, that's the evolution of religion is trying to figure out that in concert with love and and how does that how does that play out i I love that Uh, let me ask you this is the last question um and i'm gonna i probably shouldn't do this but i'm gonna try to bring it back to jesus again because you already deftly uh avoided answering it too much (laughs) what about something like can you imagine jesus not the christ but the jesus living interacting with um all the people that he did can you imagine him? Is he disavowing his enjoyment of getting the religious people angry? Is there something like that that's playing out? Is he enjoying um, that piece of it? I mean, because clearly the religious leaders are the conservatives. They're enjoying kicking him out. Mm-hmm. Is he enjoying the other? Could we say that at some level? Do we even know? Or are we just are we just guessing? Yeah, well, I mean, the the Boothby approach, which I really like, because as I said, you know, I haven't really known what to do with Jesus. Like, I've not had that much interest, you know, I don't... don't oh, I've, I've noticed, yeah, I've noticed. Oh, is that right? I've been praying for you. 
Oh yeah, good, good. Well, you know what? It's working because I think I think I've turned a corner in this, um, and the corner I've turned is to go the the, and I I think I think you can make an argument for this. I mean, I'm almost showing my conclusion without my working out, which is bad. But I think you can make an argument for this that that the central the the the, the trajectory the 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 bullseye of, of the gospels is this love and love your enemy particularly not even just love your neighbor which you know you get in judaism whatever it's love your enemy and if you can if you can interpret this as an orientation to the the terrifying dimension of the other in their unconscious truth right the the da- well it's like you're using the term freud's term dusting the thingness the, the that black box of the other's desire that is so terrifying that's why you know whenever you hear somebody playing loud music in their car with the window down it can sometimes be disconcerting because it's almost like the, it's almost like you're experiencing their desire they're forcing their desire onto you in some weird way you know um is like but actually to be able to stand in the hurricane of the other's desire. That's where I think Jesus's enjoyment was. This is what, and this is what makes him such an interesting character is he enjoyed um, the other in that dimension. And I've just finished, I'm very excited about this. It's hopefully gonna come out soon. Um, I'm a producer, uh, I was part of one of the creators and producer for a four part documentary about the life of Tammy Faye Baker. Um, oh, yeah. and yeah, so we've we spent the last few years making this, and we got we were able to get Vice Studios in. They 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 gave us a budget. We had three point two million, so we were able to really make this big uh, doc, which will say hopefully be coming out on Netflix or something. The reason why we chose Tammy Faye Baker to do a documentary on was for a few reasons. One is because we live in such a divided and fragmented society, and Tammy Faye is one of those few figures who can bring together gay community, drag queens, conservative folk from middle America, fundamentalist preachers, all around the same table, laughing and crying together, right? Not many figures can do that, she could do it. But more fundamentally, Tammy Faye Baker, and it was the death of her, it was the death of her, but Tammy Faye Baker had this ability or inability, (laughs) she had this inability to shut off from the other, in their toxicity she was always open to the other and when people laughed her and mocked her she would put out her hand she would hug them she would laugh with them uh there's a very famous if you've seen the movie um came out uh jessica chastain played tammy faye baker and there's a scene in the movie where uh there's some kids who are like looking over at her and they're laughing because they've seen her on TV. She's a bit of a ridicule figure and she goes over and she introduces herself to them and she's really nice to them. Right. And it's a really nice scene. Right. But my friend, uh, who's Tammy Faye's son, Jay Baker, Jay was telling me, he says, that didn't happen. He says that happened. But he says, the truth was we were in the mall and there were bunch of kids, these tough looking kids, all laughing and mocking. And she went over to them and she shook their hands. She gave them a hug and she said, listen, if you're going to talk about me, at least let me buy you lunch. She would, and they all went to like Applebee's. She bought them all food. She sat down, she chatted with them. But like, that was Tammy Faye Baker. Mm-hmm. It was like, Whereas Jim Baker, and I think he was wrongly attacked a lot. He was ridiculed for me, in many ways, and he became the thing that he self prophecy. Yeah, he became a scapegoat. He became a scapegoat. He was crucified, and then sadly he became and has become, you know, a character who is incredibly paranoid, incredibly fearful of the world. You know, everyone knows he's he's obsessed with the apocalypse that's coming, but it's because it already happened in his life. You know, <laughs> people who are free of fear of the apocalypse, the apocalypse has already happened, you know, maybe in their past. So, the, but Tammy Faye was always open to the dimension of the other. And that's why we wanted to make the doc. And that's, I think, what Jesus was at heart, the figure of Jesus, not the Christ. Now, I think that fits with the Christ. I think this, this is where you can unify the two. But in the figure of Jesus, you have someone who enjoyed opening themselves up to the toxic dimension of the other in their dusting dimension. And the thing is, all of us have done it in our lives occasionally, right? 
maybe we've done it many times. But as we get older and as we get beaten up, we close ourselves down and we become more and more insular. We create a fortress. And it doesn't matter how good you were at doing this when you were 20 years old or 30 years old. Can we do this for all of our lives? Can we somehow remain open to the other when we've been battered down a pile of times? Protecting ourselves, of course, but somehow always saying, I will be open to the other in their monstrosity and strangeness. That I think is the call of Jesus. It's an impossible call, but that's the impossible call of love that I see in the figure of Jesus. That's a great way to end. Thank you for that. And I think that's true. So may you and me and all of us go out and be open to the other. I think think that's a, a really great way of expressing love. So thank you, man. Thank you. And listen, thanks for, for inviting me to be part of this and for yeah. this conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope next time it's in person. Um, yeah. You said you want to come out to Northern Ireland sometime, so I hope that happens. Yeah, unless you want to come to Kansas City and have some barbecue, we could do that. Oh, too. yeah. I mean, that might happen before Belfast. Yeah, I mean, I'm wanting to get back to uh, touring a wee bit in America. So, yeah, either Belfast or Kansas. All right. All right. Let's make it happen. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it, man. Uh, We'll be in touch and God bless. Bye. All right. Thanks for hanging out with me and Pete today. I really appreciated our conversation and it cracks me up listening to it because you can tell like when he finishes up one of his perfect Rollin-esque poetic things that he does, I'm just trying to pause for a moment and let that truth and the beauty and the interesting stuff of what he says sink down into my brain, into my heart. Most of the time, I don't even have time because he's off onto the next thing, which is a part of what makes him uh, so endearing, I guess. But good stuff. I hope you'll check out Girardian Intersections at eventbrite.com. Find out about our conference coming up in August where we talk more about how Girard intersects with lots of different uh, ideas and topics in our day and age. And I think it's a really important um, thing to consider his work is. So I hope you'll check us out there. Um, Also, one other thing I thought I'd mention as I was re-listening to this interview, when I bring up whitehead or open relational or process stuff, you know, not every open and relational theologian, you know, shares the same views. Like, for example, when I talk about love and I'm really attracted to this dialectical, like love divided, agitated, hurt, wounded in and of itself. And that's part of the reason why you can tell I'm attracted and influenced uh, by, you know, Rollins's work. But when I talk about that with my friend Tom Ward, he's not always been super excited about it. (laughs) So maybe I'll change his mind one day or maybe he'll show me (laughs) a better way. But I mention all that just to say that it's important to keep in mind. You probably already know this, but it's important to keep in mind that, you know, different thinkers, even within certain frameworks, may come at this from different angles. And I think that's part of what makes it interesting and makes it fun. Anyhow. Love itself is really worth digging into, and it's a topic that just never seems to stop giving. I'm so grateful for that, and that's why I have spent my life trying to figure it out more and more and more, as if you can figure out something so rich and nuanced and so great. So thanks for hanging out with me today. Bless all of you. Have an awesome rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.